Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Philip Cook, who is Professor of Public Policy, Economics, and Sociology at Duke University. He's a member of the Institute of Medicine and National Academy of Sciences. He's also director of the NBER Workgroup on the Economics of Crime and co-editor of the NBER Volume on Crime Prevention. Welcome, Phil. Uh, thanks for having me, Gil. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers to set the context for our discussion. Uh, from 2013, the paper is entitled The Great American Gun War, Notes from Four Decades uh, in the Trenches. Um, you say uh, in this essay, you provide an account of how research on gun violence has evolved over the last four decades, intertwined with personal observation and commentary. Uh, I don't know much about this, Phil, um, and so, so, so could you could you set the context for uh, how you know gun violence might have changed in the U.S. last forty fifty years? Uh, sure, I I think that uh, my perspective on it is as a scholar and uh, particularly uh, as an economist, and my experience. Uh, is then filtered through the peculiar perceptions that that we researchers have, but you know what we've seen, I think, um, is that the United States uh, has long been uh, one of the most violent countries um, in the developed world, uh, and that starting in the Vietnam era, there was a period where the homicide rate doubled, it stayed high for a couple of decades and then started uh, dropping in 1993 uh, and went back to uh, where it was before that big upsurge. And so uh, my career has spanned a period when the, the problem measured by the homicide rate uh, has doubled and, and then halved, uh, which uh, is interesting. But I will say that the 
uh, intensity of the debate about how we should regulate guns, which account for most of those homicides, that that intensity has remained, uh, and if anything, has become more virulent during that period of time. So I'm surprised, uh, Phil. So you're saying, um, so we had a decline in the 1990s, and we are back to where we sort of started in terms of homicide rates? I, I could say that confidently by 2014, we were back uh, to uh, where we were, say, in 1963. Oh uh, and uh, yeah. there was this extraordinary crime drop from 1993 to 2014. Not expected, uh, not well explained, but it happened. Uh, and it was transformative in all the ways we would expect it. The, the city that is exhibit A for the effect of, of that crime drop is New York City. Yeah. And, and in New York, actually, the, the drop in violence was even more uh, precipitous. Uh, and, and now New York is a, a relatively safe place to be. And that's true even in areas that used to be very problematic, like Harlem or the Bronx. Uh, and the effect has been uh, that the, the city has grown in population and in wealth, you know, the property values have turned around, uh, that it's really uh, made a, a big difference uh, during that period of time. And uh, so this is a phenomenon, uh, as you say, we have been one of the most violent uh, countries in the developed world. So this is not a phenomenon that happened anywhere else in the world, right? I know that Australia and uh, Western Europe, um, you know, I think the, the gun-related violence at least has been declining quite substantially. Yes, I, I think Australia has been successful in, in reducing what was already a very low rate of gun violence, and, and that's been true in uh, the United Kingdom and England. Uh, through, among other things, regulation. Uh, but all the way along, their overall uh, rates of serious violence were substantially lower than what we have uh, in the United States. So uh, I think that this is part of American exceptionalism, is that we have to deal with, um, with a greater threat from criminal violence than is true in Western Europe or, or Australia, or certainly in Japan or China, um, or, or even Canada right next door. Uh, and that's been part of um, the American experience. You know, whether, I mean, it, it hasn't been my job to try to understand that very fundamental relationship, but I will, certainly endorse the idea that part of the deadliness of violence in America has to do with the widespread availability of guns. Uh, that's something that greatly exceeds uh, anything, any of the, of the other countries that we're talking about. Yeah, I don't know uh, what the statistics are uh, exactly, but uh, it's something like we have three guns per person or something like that in the U.S.? Well, it's not quite that bad. <laughs> so uh, the estimate that 
uh, I liked as of a couple of years ago was 300 million uh, guns total in private hands. And that works out to a bit more than one gun per adult. Uh, but yeah. uh, it is true that in the last couple of years, and especially in 2020, there was a surge in gun sales, and, and it probably, these days, the total might be 330 million, something like that. Um, but it's still on the order of one gun uh, per person. Um, and that's a lot. The thing to understand about that, um, besides the fact that it's a lot, is that the guns are not distributed uniformly across households, uh, and th yep. but in fact, most households have zero guns in them in the U.S. So uh, the high estimate is maybe 40% of households have one or more guns. But the, but the households that have guns tend to have quite a few, yep. and they average around five or, or more. Um, and so I think it's fair to say that people who like guns tend to accumulate them uh, and some have arsenals of 20 guns or 50 guns. Right. And so, so, so when you say violence, um, are, you, are, are you talking about violence in general or are you talking about violence related to guns specifically? Yeah, I, I think this is uh, something that is missed uh, in some of the international comparisons. Uh, it is certainly true that where the U.S. Uh, really stands out is in terms of gun violence. Yeah. But even our non-gun homicide rate uh, exceeds the rate that we find in, in any of the Western European countries or Canada or Australia or Japan uh, by a wide margin. Uh, so I think it's fair that even if you removed guns from the scene, we would still have a somewhat higher rate of deadly violence uh, just with knives uh, and clubs and so forth. Um, but where we really excel uh, is, is with uh, gun violence. <laughs> Right. Yeah, we have had a lot of practice with it. Uh, and so, so, so if you think about this more like a disease, Phil, I don't know if it's the right analogy, but um, it seems to me that um, we have some sort of genetic proclivity to violence. Is that a reasonable, reasonable assumption? I mean, I, I can't imagine that it's a genetic explanation that we... No, I, I, I didn't mean, you know, kind of human genetic, but if you think about the system uh, as sort of a, you know, a social system, uh, the people in the U.S., are they more prone to violence for whatever reasons? Uh, it, it's an interesting question about whether um, you would see the people transplanted from the U.S. to, to, um, to Europe would continue to be relatively uh, violent. But I, I think that um, in defense of Americans, uh, it, it should be pointed out that even in, in America, the um, serious violence and, and the number of serious violence perpetrators uh, tends to be quite 
limited, quite small. So it's it's not necessarily that we're all sharing in this uh, disease, but but that uh, for whatever reason there uh, is a larger group that is uh, caught up in in violent patterns, whether it's domestic violence or or gang related violence or uh, just routine bar fights and that kind of thing, where they tend to drink too much and, and then get into fights so the the uh, so you know hard hard to say what cultural explanation what circumstantial explanation there might be that would really account for why we're different and if you cross the border into canada that the things get safer in all kinds of ways yeah, but, but if, we, if we see the aggregate numbers to be higher in the U.S., and if you say the, the people engaged in violence and crime, uh, let's say violence in general, um, if the numbers engaged are not necessarily high, then one has to conclude that the people who are engaged in violence are more efficient in doing that, and they do a lot more than other countries oh not not necessarily all i'm saying is is that even though we do have uh, more serious violence uh of all kinds uh it's still mainly attributed to a small percentage of the population and that would be true in yeah. in other countries as well uh and our percentage might be a bit higher than what we see in western europe and incidentally okay. just to be clear uh, there, the comparisons that we are inclined to make are with other wealthy countries. Uh, it, there, there are middle-income countries and low-income countries that have still higher rates of violence, and you have to keep that in mind. That Central America has uh, a much higher murder rate, for example, than the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can relate to that. Um, I don't know if it is totally related to income, um, but maybe there are other factors. I grew up in India. I never have seen a gun uh, or a gun-related crime uh, when I was growing up. Um, and and so, so I, I suspect um, access to guns, and, and this is where uh, I think uh, our discussions uh, will go in the, in the next couple of papers, and I think this is one of your hypotheses. But before we get there, though, Phil, this drop in violence in the early 90s and subsequent retracing uh, to the levels in 2014, do you have any hypothesis as to why that happened? Well, I, I think that most accounts by criminologists would start with uh, the crack cocaine era. And what we saw was the crack was introduced into um, American cities in the early 1980s and it spread across the country. It tended, the distribution of crack tended to be associated with high rates of violence. It, it was being sold by gangs that often use teenagers as their uh, street corner salespeople, uh, that those teenagers were given guns and, and that uh, to protect the, the stash, uh, but ended up using them in all kinds of other ways, and, and the gangs be, uh, became more violent. So there was uh, a period through about 
um, the early 1990s when it does look like uh, crack was playing a big role. Uh, beyond that, there's no dis no real agreement um, about what the the ultimate cause um, was during that period or why it turned the corner. You know, why did we start seeing uh, such a dramatic drop in uh, 1993? And uh, all we can say is that at the in 1993, the criminologists were predicting a continued increase of, of violence. Uh, and there were horrific projections about how bad it was going to get. Um, and of course, none of that happened. Uh, and in fact, the reverse happened. So it, it was more like a miracle than anything else. And, and it, uh, it, it, I, I think that to, I would give some of the credit to improve policing and, and to cities uh, waking up to what had to be done in, in terms of hiring more police. That was part of the situation in New York City and and, uh, and some of the other cities that, that have been uh, studied. Uh, I unfortunately need to add that, you know, it dropped, as I say, through 2014 since then, it has been sneaking up a bit. And so we, we've seen, uh, as of uh, last year or 2019, there, there's been some increase uh, in homicide and, and uh, violent crime generally. Uh, but in 2020, uh, the COVID year, the, the year of, of thousands of street demonstrations and what have you, We've seen an enormous spike in serious violence and, and in homicide. So a number of cities have experienced a 50% increase in homicide in 2020. Um, and uh, so I, I, I would always say and, and have said that we didn't really understand why violence rates dropped so much uh, in those yeah. decades. Uh, and that lack of understanding may uh, doom us to repeat the increase that we experienced earlier. I, I hope that's not true and and that somehow this is just a one-off experience and it'll drop again. Yeah, I mean, the fact is one could think about, um, you know, perhaps some sort of policy change in the early 90s. I know that was Clinton, President Clinton, um, uh, 90s have been generally um, economically, the U.S. was doing really well. I don't know if economic growth uh, had an effect um, till we hit the air pocket in, in 2008. Um, I don't know, you know, the, the, are there environmental conditions we can potentially attribute to and policies? Uh, right. Uh I, I wish I could uh, offer a good explanation um, that was persuasive. You know, I, I actually have studied the effect of economic conditions on violent crime and, and homicide, uh, looked at the effect of the business cycle. And, um, you know, I think generally what we found is that the uh, business cycle, the boom and bust cycle, uh, has very little effect on the homicide rate. Uh, so, you know, there's it, it, um, what what we know is that 
the 1990s were a time when drug use was trending down, uh, that people were yeah. drinking less, uh, always a good thing when it comes to violence. Um, yeah. And there was, um, a, you know, more interest in healthy lifestyles and so forth. So there, there was a, a kind of a cultural change during that time. Um, but uh, hard, hard to build that into a scientific explanation. <laughs> yeah, I also wondered, I, I don't know anything about this, Phil. I also wondered if, you know, there's some sort of a balancing, um, you know, that happens on the system. Um, in other words, is there an upper end of per capita violence that a system can sustain when it hits that those upper ranges uh, for whatever reasons, uh, you tend to mean reward. Do we do we have any any reason to believe something? Yeah, like I mean, that? I I think one place you can point is that there's certainly is both private and public adaptation to the threat of crime. Uh, at the public level, um, there's political support for expanding the police and the criminal justice system and that that has some effect, especially the police, um, in reducing crime. Um, and at the private level, uh, we see a proliferation of, of uh, private uh, cameras, surveillance systems, uh, and people living in kind of withdrawing from, from normal social interaction and finding ways to protect themselves. Uh, businesses hiring more guards, uh, setting up business improvement districts, and and so forth. So, there there is, for better or worse, um, both a, a public and a private response that may happen with some lag. Um, and in this case, I I think that you know in nineteen early nineteen nineties, both both sectors were very concerned about crime. Uh, and uh, the cities were going downhill. It was a desperate situation. Uh, and there was a, a, a response that, that may have um, accounted for some of the success in turning the corner. Yeah, I mean, one concerning thing, as you mentioned, uh, is this uptick and significant increase in the last couple of years. Um, maybe you know taking COVID as a cover <laughs> to uh, to to increase the violent activities um, it, it's problematic, right? Be, uh, you know, it's uh, you can't really focus on it because the so society has other things to to worry about. You can't focus on it, and uh, you know it wasn't clear exactly what was going to be the response uh, of. COVID, since COVID included many different changes in the way we live, uh, starting with a, a deep economic depression. And as I say, I don't think that matters a great deal in normal times, uh, but also the changes in people's routine activities and how they interact with each other. Uh, but it also had the effect of making the police uh, back off. Uh, and the, I, yeah. I think that they didn't want to get sick and, and mix it up with people on the sidewalks uh, or even stopping cars and so that there may have been uh, some disengagement on the part of the police that, that didn't help. It, it's, 
Um, could have gone either way, uh, but uh, sadly, uh, at the same time, um, you know that that we saw other types of crime going down. We saw this enormous explosion in lethal violence and homicide. You know, if you look at the burglary rate or the robbery rate, many fewer break-ins, for example. Uh, people are staying home, defending their property. So it, it, it was not a good time to be a burglar, but the gangs were very active uh, out on the street. Right, right. And, uh, you know, the, the good case of New York uh, can be uh, contrasted against sort of the bad case of Chicago. And it seems like Chicago has gone in the other direction. I mean, yeah, Chicago is um, one of the cities that yeah. had a fifty percent increase in homicide last year. Uh, it's just uh, unbelievable. I mean, it, it is such a huge change in violence uh, that happened all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, we'll take a, a quick break, Phil. When we come back, uh, we'll focus uh, very much on your uh, research um, area, which is uh, guns, um, the type of guns, availability, regulations, public policy, and... Uh, and this is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. We're back. Uh, Phil, you were talking about uh, violence in general, uh, why the U.S. statistics uh, appear to be... um, so, sort of an outlier compared to other Western countries, other developed countries in terms of aggregate violence. Um, and you have done a lot of research in this area, especially uh, how guns um, could uh, could have an impact on overall violence in society. So uh, you have a paper, Understanding Gun Violence, Public Health Versus Public Policy. Um, and you have uh, mentioned in this paper that the statistics that we use to measure uh, gun violence, um, maybe uh, it's not sufficiently robust to, to, to think about policy. You want to talk a bit about, um, about that paper and, uh, and, and what, what, what your thinking is? Yes, I'd, I'd be glad to. Uh, 20 years ago, I published a book with Jens Ludwig called Gun Violence, The Real Costs, which was a sustained effort to try to understand what kind of problem gun violence is and how serious it is. And it seemed like that understanding was the first step to acting effectively against it. So it was very much uh, our interest in improving policy that led us to do that research. And what we said in the book and what we and and I have continued to say is that the normal way that that the problem gets characterized leaves us short of a good understanding of the full problem. Mm -hmm. So the usual way that we 
we hear when people want to say that the guns are a problem is they report on the number of people killed and how they are killed by guns. And of course, that that's helpful. It's the beginning of wisdom. Uh, but what it ignores is the fact that, especially for guns used against other people for homicide and, and for assault, um, much of the problem has to do with avoiding becoming a victim. And it's this cost of avoidance or, or of minimizing the damage uh, that should also be taken into account. Uh, if, if you look at uh, neighborhoods of big cities, for example, that have high rates of gun violence, uh, what you see is that there has been a long period of disinvestment that people who have the means to leave do leave. They don't want to be there uh, because it's too dangerous. Uh, and so it becomes a problem not just for indig individuals who are shot, but also for the entire community, uh, that it contributes to its uh, poverty uh, and is difficult to turn around. It contributes to the fact that the children living there are traumatized by the sounds of gunfire and, and by perhaps even witnessing victims. Um, and that businesses that could employ the people living there uh, typically don't move in uh, because of, of the risk uh, associated with, with violence. So that's the perspective to say, it's not just counting up the bodies, um, but also we need to take into account all of the efforts of avoiding violence and what the consequences of those efforts are for the community. And I, I would point to the close parallel to how we understand the COVID-19, uh, the <laughs> epidemic, yeah. uh, because there, of course, we, we can say, well, the problem is 350,000 people have died. Um, and that is certainly um, a very important aspect uh, of the problem. But the other half of it is that there have been such serious uh, economic and social dislocations from people trying to avoid becoming uh, infected. Uh, and so the, the fact that we had depression era unemployment rates that hundreds of thousands of small businesses have closed down, uh, that the uh, food insecurity rates have gone through the roof and on and on, all have to be taken as part of the problem of COVID. Just, so that, that's the analogy I, I think that would speak to us right now. If, if you live in a neighborhood that has high rates of gun violence, the effect is pervasive. It's not just for people who uh, happen to to be the direct victims, but it's all of the knockoff effects have to be taken into account. Yeah, it's very very analogous, as you say. Uh, and there is another dimension, Phil, which is also um, parallels this problem, and that is, you know, in healthcare, sometimes we call it disease burden. 
and the and the disease burden is not just mortality not just you know sort of the tactical measurements of um what people have gone through uh, but rather long term effects of a disease uh for instance 20 uh, sorry 1918 spanish flu uh millions of people had parkinson's disease even after surviving that and so the, the disease burden for society is substantially more than what the tactical measurements would would imply and and in the in the case of guns it's a similar situation right just like you say when when trouble starts um cities uh so you know um areas in a city could essentially over a long period of time could be cage uh because uh, people just can't <laughs> just can't survive there uh and so yeah the long term effects are just uh just potentially much more significant than what we are tactically measuring yes i i i like the term uh disease burden and i i think that it's right and that the community uh, decays in response to violence simply because people who have the choice don't want to be there they, they don't want to uh, have to listen to gunfire at night or or to uh, expose themselves to the elevated risks that's associated with that uh and that's going to have all as i say a, a, a series of effects what what it is in a nutshell is that gun violence becomes a community development problem uh, yeah. and for uh, a country you know like famously colombia uh, um a decade ago for example or the central american countries it's a national development problem that that the uh international businesses don't want to locate there because of the high rates of, of violence and and gang violence and so forth but for us it, it's located at the community level and it has systemic effects we know for example uh that uh even just by some definition of direct victim we would want to include uh the children who are traumatized by uh being witnesses or being associated with a uh, gun violence victimization we're seeing very good studies now on mass shootings in schools and how the students who even students who didn't see anything uh have in many cases become traumatized by that uh and so it it, it is also true for these communities that year in and year out have a, a very highly elevated rate of violence Yeah so so I wondered Phil you know from a policy perspective uh is the data and statistics um fairly obvious uh I'm just thinking that uh I know that Australia had sort of a similar problem they have taken um very severe actions against guns regulation availability of guns the type of guns that can circulate and and you can see a significant drop in gun related violence right and so couldn't we contrast when I mean, we have experiments now run by different countries um and there isn't a significant cultural uh difference uh between let's say US and Australia 
And if we see that the results of an experiment like that, couldn't we conclude that that is, that is what's going to happen to us if we take similar actions? Uh, yes, I, I think that the Australian experiment is certainly relevant and interesting. Um, the problem is that while there's a lot of similarity between Americans and Australians, <laughs> a lot of overlap, uh, one way in which it's different is in the politics. And so the National Rifle Association is powerful in, in the United States, powerful politically. Uh, and so that it, it's impossible to, to take the kind of action that uh, was taken at following the Port Arthur massacre uh, in 1996 in, in Australia. Um, and so for better or worse, we don't have the option of doing what they did at the time. And remember what they did was basically to ban uh, semi-automatic rifles uh, and shotguns. They, they had already sharply uh, restricted handguns. Um, and not only did they ban the semi-automatic uh, rifles that, that can be um, you, where you can shoot multiple rounds just by a trigger pull with, without cocking or, or loading. Um, but they also had an, a national buyback program. And so they ended up accumulating a million of these guns and, and destroying them. Uh, so all of that, plus the fact that Australia is sort of an island <laughs> and yeah. uh, made for uh, a remarkably effective measure. And one result is that there have been no more mass shootings in Australia since that time. And it just uh, all those years, it, and, and this has to be part of the explanation. Right, right. And, you know, what's puzzling to me at least is that um, something like 18, 90% of the US population are open to um, higher levels of regulation, background checks, and so on. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, just you know, just uh, reading uh, reading online and things like that. So you can correct me if this is not true. Um, but as you say, we have a very powerful organization, and just the existence of the NRA would disallow any changes to the system. Uh, if that's the case, even if 80-90% of people are willing to make changes, then um, then I don't know what the choices are for the country. And, and the lack of choice becomes even more uh, serious to the extent that the Second Amendment plays a role and, and that we might see the U.S. Supreme Court um, declaring a... a larger domain for the Second Amendment uh, freedoms and rights uh, that would actually preempt some of the controls that we do have in place now at the uh, federal or uh, state level. So um, that remains to be seen, uh, but it doesn't look good for given the, uh, the composition of the Supreme Court that we have uh, right now, I think what happened politically, though, be, you know, even outside of the Second Amendment issues, 
has been that the Republican Party, for whatever reason, began to align itself with the National Rifle Association. Uh, <laughs> and the two, in, in terms of their positions, became almost indistinguishable when it came to discussions of um, regulating guns. Uh, yeah. And so th that, of course, greatly amplified the leverage that the National Rifle Association had and has had uh, over the years. And so there, there we are, for, uh, for better or worse. Uh, fortunately, there are some areas uh, that um, there is sometimes bi bipartisan support um, and that we, we have seen action always at the state level. Uh, one of them, for example, is the red flag laws, the extreme risk protection orders that allow family members to go to a judge um, and request that guns be removed from the home uh, because uh, one of the members of the family is uh, looks like they're uh, decompensating or, or having a mental health crisis or in some way are at great risk of committing suicide or, or of shooting somebody else. And those laws um, are uh, being adopted in uh, red states, so to speak, in, in some cases and, and might spread. But, but you're right. Nationwide, the uh, the uh, is often registered at eighty percent or, or more, and yet Congress has been unwilling or unable to move in that direction. And instead, I think it's more likely that we'll go the other direction. Yeah, it's. It has to be they're unable, right? Uh, I mean, if, if everybody is calling their representatives, um, they, I mean, to be unwilling to take up the case cannot be sustainable in a democracy, I would imagine. Right. Well, we'll see. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, in most recent time that Congress acted decisively to uh, strengthen uh, gun regulation was in 1994 with the Brady Act. Um, and uh, since then, uh, that 26 years uh, since then, there hasn't been much uh, along those lines. So the usual uh, analysis, I'm not a political scientist, I, I must confess, but um, the usual analysis has been that while those who support the NRA and, and oppose gun regulation uh, constitute a minority of the electorate, uh, they're a very intense and disciplined minority. Uh, and they often treat gun issues as their top uh, priority. They, they are, are perhaps the only issue that they care about uh, when they vote. Whereas uh, other people um, may support more gun regulation, but they also support 20 other uh, things and, and then have to choose um, among the available candidates uh, in terms of the whole mix of, of issues. Right, right. 
yeah, it seems like we have set of constraints. Um, uh, perhaps there may be other ways to think about. So I want to close with, uh, Phil, your, your essay, Thinking About Gun Violence. You recently received the Stockholm Prize along with uh, Frank Zimmerman. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you. You couldn't actually go to Sweden, I would imagine, right? Right. They canceled the ceremony uh, last uh, June, <laughs> and there is some talk about having it this coming June, but uh, uh, I think it's unlikely, <laughs> but so, so it goes. Yeah, yeah. And so this essay, you know, uh, if you were to look forward based on all the research you have done, um, everything you have seen, um, what, is the, what is the likely path uh, for the U.S.? I know that it's not going to be quick uh, based on all the constraints we already talked about. But what's the likely path for the U.S. to at least move toward a more, more civilized uh, form of society? Um, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think that there's much that can be done uh, about regulating guns or restricting their design or their distribution um, uh, and, or, or even the way they're carried or where they're carried. That's going to be very difficult, and I suspect we will see the traditional rules in those areas will be eroded uh, over time, as I say, because of the Supreme Court uh, and because of, of the ongoing politics of, of the situation. So I think where that leaves us um, is with, um, for, for a systematic policy, uh, in this area is going to be better policing of gun violence. Uh, and I think that uh, in, in this respect, um, I uh, certainly am swimming uh, upstream. I, I think it's fair to say they uh, just in, in the year then we, we've heard uh, a demand that we defund the police. Uh, my, <laughs> my, my, proposal would be that we strengthen the police effort, at least when it comes to uh, holding uh, violent criminals accountable. So what we've seen is uh, that in many cities, there's a very low arrest rate for shooting somebody. I mean, the likelihood in Chicago dropped as low as 5%. <coughs> Uh, and in in 2016 for non-fatal shootings. And so what it means is that the criminals have almost impunity in a situation like that. Uh, is it because they can persons or there is something? Uh, excuse me, say it again. Uh, it's because they cannot find the shooter or something else? I think that uh, often the, finding the shooter is not a problem because the shooter goes to the emergency department of the local hospital in almost every case uh, and that they uh, are reported uh, as having a gunshot wound. The police can arrive and interview them. Uh, but uh, often the victim is not cooperative with uh, the police investigation. And so they say that they uh, are not going to cooperate, that they're going to take care of it themselves. 
uh, and the result is uh, the police can't get anywhere with the investigation, or it's difficult without a lot of extra effort. Um, the police these days are swamped with these cases, and so they need to get on to the next one is what it amounts to. And you set up this vicious circle of violence begetting violence uh, that victims seek revenge, and, um, and so it goes. Uh, and I, th I think that to cut into that really does require that um, police give higher priority to the most serious kinds of violence uh, and that they invest in, in the technology that's available now that would help them uh, and, and the training and the, simply the numbers of detectives that are needed to get a hold of this uh, and that that will begin to stop the bleeding. And I, I think that that's the place we have to start. Uh, we can also look at all kinds of other programs that might mean that the, the youths are not so inclined to join gangs and, and to cause trouble, you know, starting with summer jobs programs and that kind of thing. But I, I think without accountability and without a high arrest rate, it's going to be hard to make anything work in this area. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I wondered, Phil, do states have any autonomy, uh, you know, if the federal laws are going to be stagnant, can, can a state uh, go ahead and, you know, implement its own policies or that will be challenged in the Supreme Court? I think right now we do see uh, quite a bit of variety in terms of state laws. And uh, almost any area that you want to uh, consider, whether it's banning assault weapons or, or limiting concealed carry of guns or, or open carry, uh, whether it's these extreme risk protection orders that I was talking about, uh, that yeah. all of those um, are present in some states and not in others. My state of North Carolina, hmm. um, has had since 1921 or so a requirement that if you're going to buy a handgun, you have to get a permit from the local sheriff. Uh, and that law remains on the books and I think it actually does some good uh, along the way. But uh, again, you don't see that in most states. Uh, and I, I think that where the Gun Control Act of 1968 left things was to try to protect the states from each other is what it amounted to uh, by limiting the circulation of guns across state lines and then allowing the states effectively to move ahead with their own uh, regulations. Uh, certainly though the, um, the uh, constitution and the second amendment rulings could easily apply at the state level as well as the federal level, we'll just have to see. Yeah, so, so since we have, I don't know if it is 50 different experiments going on, but close to that, uh, can we actually look at how the, you know, the per capita rates are differing uh, in different states? Would that give us some insight? I think so. And that has been a lot of my research was looking at uh, how states or cities differ from each other and how they change over time. 
and tried to understand uh, the role of, for example, gun availability in influencing gun crime. And so early on, my main finding was that uh, cities that had um, a high prevalence of gun ownership uh, had a high rate of gun use in robbery and in other violent crime. Uh, that may not sound too surprising, but what it says is that the criminals uh, are being affected directly by the environment of gun availability that they're in. And if they live in Boston, it's much harder to get a gun than if they live in Phoenix. Uh, you know, there just is such a big difference um, in, in terms of the percentage of households that own a handgun, for example, uh, probably 50% versus 5% in that case. Uh, and that that makes uh, a difference. And, and uh, we've seen that when areas, uh, states particularly increase gun prevalence, then the homicide rate goes up. And so that that becomes part of the uh, story is just to look at, at the ownership of guns and how the legitimate ownership of guns leaks into the illegitimate uh, sector and, and makes guns available to, uh, to uh, gang members and, and to violent criminals. That's been an important finding. Uh, there's also been a, a number of studies looking at the effect of, of specific regulatory change uh, uh, that I and, and others have done, and we can learn some lessons uh, from that. But one lesson, by the way, is passing a law is not enough. You also have to enforce it. And often, uh, sadly, the laws are passed and, and uh, there's no enforcement uh, following it, and, and so it is ineffective. So there it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it has long been discussed, uh, as you say, not a lot of action last uh, 20, 25 years, um, but uh, hopefully this is something that uh, the next administration can do. Yes, and I think that they will do uh, what they can, uh, and uh, we have to... Uh, see how things go in Georgia if if both Democratic candidates win there and, and the Senate is organized by the Democrats, then I think at least there's a chance of modest measures coming out of Congress. Um, and uh, that meanwhile, as you say, that the states can proceed if they're so inclined with their own regulations uh, and, and less than until such time as the Supreme Court expands the Second Amendment ruling. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Phil. Thanks so much. For yeah, I, I appreciate it. Interesting uh, to talk to you about these issues that I've been struggling with for the last 45 years. So there it is. Yeah, extremely important. Okay, take care. Thanks again. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at 
scientificsense.com